In Parshas Lech Lecha, Hashem promises Avram, Ki ger your people will be a foreigner in foreign land, Vivdum, they'll be enslaved, afterwards they'll leave with great wealth. And Avram Avinu is promised that A, the Jewish nation will be formed. He's also told that they'll become slaves and they'll leave with great wealth. And the rest of Sefer Bereshis really has that as the storyline. And really, the story of the Jewish peoples going down to Mitzrayim begins with the Pasuk, Vayeshev Yaakov, Beretz Muguri Oviv, Yaakov sat in the land of Canaan, and the entire story begins. Yosef is the Ben Zakunim, the most favored of all the brothers. Yaakov makes him a Kesonis Pasim. The Surah explains that that was a mantle of leadership. Yaakov recognized Yosef as the wisest of the brothers, and he appointed him to be in charge. The result of that was Vaikanobo Echav, his brothers were jealous of him. Eventually they saw him as a Morid Bamalchus, they saw him as a threat to all of their lives. They sold him to the Midjonim. The Midjonim sold him down to Mitzrayim. Yosef ends up in the house of Fotifar. He's there for one year. Then he's put into prison. He spends 12 years in prison. And finally, at the age of 30, Yosef is brought to Paro's house. Paro has his dream. No one is able to repotter it. And Yosef, incredibly, with accuracy, with tremendous understanding, reveals exactly what the dream means. Paro says, There's no one as wise and smart as you. And Paro appoints Yosef to be second in command. And Yosef, in fact, at the age of 30, becomes the viceroy of Mitzrayim. And he stays in that position for the seven years of plenty. And then two more years, and he's 39 years of age when the brothers come down because there's no food left in Canaan. They come down and immediately Yosef recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He was 17 years old when he left. Some Rishonim explained he didn't have a beard. Now he looked like a full-grown man. In their wildest dreams, they would not envision their brother to be the second in command. And the entire charade goes on. Binyamin isn't there. Yosef sends them back. Finally, Yaakov and his sons, the entire family, comes down to Mitzrayim. And then, in fact, the next step is Yosef gathers all of the wealth. The Pesach says, Yosef gathered all of the wealth in Mitzrayim in Eretz Canaan. Why? Because there was no food. The famine was a seven-year famine. No one in Mitzrayim had food. No one in Canaan had food. And all of that wealth was gathered, brought, based to Paro, brought to Paro, because Yosef sold all of the wheat. And it was only through their great wealth that they were able to continue living. And in fact, this was the fulfillment the entire Jewish nation is now in Mitzrayim. All of the wealth of all of that region is in Paro's house. And eventually the Jewish nation will become enslaved and then they'll leave with the great wealth. But the Surah explains that this fact that all of the Kesef, all of the wealth everywhere was gathered in the house of Paro also answers for us a rather interesting question. And that is, how did Yosef immediately know that his brothers came to Mitzrayim. After all, there was a famine throughout the region. Mitzrayim, Canaan, nowhere was there food. There must have been thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming by. How did Yosef instantly know 
that his brothers arrived. There were so many people. It explains the Surna because there's a Pusik in Mikates that answers that question. And the Pusik says, Hu hashalit ala aretz. Yosef was the man in charge. Hu hamashbir, he was the one who gave out the food. And those two terms are actually contradictory. The shalit is the viceroy, the one in charge, the king, the governor. Hamashbir is the one who gives out the food. Those are two very different positions, two very different seats. Explains the Surno that Yosef occupied both of those positions. And why is that? Even though he was the shalit, even though he was the sole governor and he made every decision, nevertheless he also sold personally all of the wheat to Mitzrayim. Why? He didn't trust his servants, his slaves. This one explains there's a tremendous amount of money we're dealing with. And all that money is supposed to be by Paro. Yosef was working for Paro. Yosef was the viceroy, but the king was Paro. All of that great wealth belonged to Paro. And therefore, there was no wheat sold in Mitzrayim built the Chosmo Oksavyado, without Yosef's personal signature, without his handwriting. You know how Yosef knew that the brothers came down to Mitzrayim? Because there was no wheat sold in all of Mitzrayim that Yosef personally didn't sign on the document. He didn't trust anyone else. These people were dishonest, people were not trustworthy, and every single transaction he personally witnessed, he personally signed. The brothers came, obviously they had to come to him, who are shalit, who much beer, and therefore he knew right away who they were. And if you think about this surno, it should be rather perplexing. Because Yosef is the most powerful man now in Mitzrayim, just the seat alone. Paro has the position, but he alone, Yosef, makes every decision, yet he's sitting there all day long signing documents, selling wheat. Why couldn't he just put into effect, checks and balances, some system of accounting. Okay, I'll grant you that the Mitzrayim were not reliable. He didn't trust the Avadim. But why do he have to be there himself, signing every document, <clears throat> witnessing every sale, put in some system of checks and balances, put in some audit system. Okay, there'll be some money stolen, maybe there'll be a little bit of graft, but I guarantee Paro will be very wealthy. Paro will be far wealthier than any man you could ever envision. And even if they steal 5%, 10%, why is Yosef so concerned? And more than that, didn't Yosef have much better things to be doing with his time? If you'd like to understand who Yosef is, and Rashi explains to us, why is it that Yaakov found such love for Yosef? Ben Zikunim Lo. What is Ben Zikunim Lo? Chacham, says Unkelos. Rashi explains all of the Torah that Yaakov amassed in the Yeshiva Shem Ve'eva. For 14 years, Yaakov Avinu didn't sleep in a bed. He learned Yom and Velayla. All of the Torah that he learned in those 14 years, he gave over to his son Yosef. By the time Yosef was 17 years of age, Yosef had mastered all of the Torah that Yaakov had at the age of 77. So here's a man who's clearly a Dovik Bashem. Here's a man who could be spending his time learning, davening, doing many things, and even more than that. The Torah explains it really isn't appropriate. If you're the viceroy, it's really not appropriate for you to be there selling as a merchant. So why did Yosef go to such extent? 
put in systems, put in checks and balances, and it'll be mostly honest. And just because he doesn't trust him, and just because it's true that the money should be by Paro, he has to spend so much time, so much energy, so much effort. And it seems, not just Lifnei Meshur Sadin, it seems that he's going so well beyond what be expected. Any normal person would expect the Viceroy to sit there on his throne, put into place various accountants, various people in charge, check on them. But certainly Paro didn't expect it, and no one else would expect Yosef to be there at every sale. question is, why did he do it? And to understand the answer to this question, I'd like to share with you an interesting observation. For a while, I was dealing with a young man who was a Balchuva, and this fellow had an issue. He was a real foodie, and he had grown up eating McDonald's, and McDonald's was his place. And even though now he was a full-fledged Balchuva, it was a problem. Because it wasn't that often, but he did on occasion slip, and he found himself eating cheeseburger, eating fries. He felt terrible about it. No, never, this is what he was. Okay, so here's the question. What does this young man do? He's got the Big Mac in this hand, and the fries in the other hand. What bracha does he make? What bracha do you make on a Big Mac? When you wash, <clears throat> bench, what do you do? And I'd like to share with you what you do. You don't make a bracha. Because if you make a bracha on tray food, you are compounding the sin. It's not bad enough that you ate treif, you also made a bracha levatala. <clears throat> you used Hashem's name in vain, and if you think you're going to consecrate it, or make a bracha and make it better, it doesn't make it better, it makes it worse, it compounds the sin, <clears throat> because it's a lach in shulchan aruch, that treif food you do not make a bracha on, einzim evarach, this is not blessing, it's disgusting, and if it comes out, you're in that situation, you eat the food, but you do not make a bracha. And it's interesting to note that the Mesil Sharm explains that this is not the only time when you don't make a bracha. He explains, what if the food is stolen? What if the food doesn't belong to you? And you make a bracha. Not only have you stolen food, you also made a bracha levatala. And he uses the very same expression. It's from a Gemara in Baba Kama. Ein zemavarech if you make a bracha on stolen food, it's not a blessing, it's disgusting. You made a bracha levatala. And the Mesut Sharm goes on to explain that this concept you'll see over and over. Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu Ella Emuna. What Hashem wants is integrity, honesty. And if you're going to make a blessing on something that's stolen, it's like making a bracha on something that's treif, and it's terrible. And then he brings a few examples. He says, you look at the Gemara and Shabbos, a day worker, a man who would work, and in those days there was no union, no breaks. When you worked for someone for the day, you were paid for a day's labor, and the expectation was you would work the whole day. And the Gemara explains that, therefore, you're putta from reading Kriyashma, you're putta from davening, because that's, you're on someone else's clock. You're on someone else's time. You have no right to do it. All that Hashem wants is honesty, is truth. And therefore he explains that that is considered geneva, it's gezel, it's stealing. 
And he brings down a fascinating Gemara. And Gemara in Tainus talks about Abba Chilkia. Now, Abba Chilkia was the grandson of Chunia Magil, and he was known as the rainmaker. The rainmaker means that whenever there was a drought, whenever there was real issues, the Chachamim sent to Abba Chilkia, please daven, please ask, ask Hashem to intercede. And it wasn't that rare. On a regular basis, apparently, he was the rainmaker. Now, keep in mind, this was an agricultural society, and rain spelt life or death. And Abba Chilkia was known as the man, the Chachamim, anytime they needed rain, they would send contingencies to him, asking him to daven, he would daven, and it would rain. And the Gemara tells us that, in fact, one such situation happened. And they sent a group of Chachamim, they sent a group of rabbis to Abba Chilkia to ask him for it to rain. They got to his house, empty, he wasn't there. They started asking, where is he, where is he? And they found that he was in the field. He was working. He was working as a day worker. And they greeted him, and he didn't say a word. He didn't look up. He didn't move his eye. He remained exactly at the field doing what he was doing. The Chachamim left. Later that day, Abba Chilkia comes home, and he says to his wife, I know why the Chachamim came. They came because they wanted me to daven for it to rain, let you and I go up to the roof, let's daven, and hopefully <clears throat> we won't have to be credited with this. Gemara says that's what they did. They both went up to daven, and rain clouds began forming on her side of the roof. It began raining. He comes down into his house, and the Chachamim <clears throat> come in to meet him. And they, he says to him, I'm a gentleman, what can I do for you? <clears throat> he says, they say, we are sent to ask you to make it rain. Abba says, Oh, Baruch Hashem, you don't need me to daven because look, it's raining. You don't even need me. It's raining already. At which point the Chachamim say, We understand that it's raining because of you. We get that. But we have one question. Why is it that we, when we went out to the field earlier in the day and we called out to you, you didn't answer back? You didn't even say hello? Answers Abba I am a day worker. My hours are being paid for, and it's inappropriate for me to stop. And in fact, the Gemara calls him Poel Tzedek, an honest worker, explains Mr. Lasharim, that is what's expected. Now, obviously, our times are different, and there are times called lunch breaks and expectations, but certainly in those days, when you work the day for a man, your entire day was considered given to him, and if you took off time, it was taking off time from the boss. And Abba Chilkia didn't dare even say Shalom back. He didn't want to stop because he felt it was Geneva. And apparently that's the right way to act. And if you think about that Gemara, it's rather profound. Because we're dealing with a tzaddik. And we're dealing with a man who's incredibly careful about not being rude and about <clears throat> other people's honor. But nevertheless, I'm a day worker my day is given over to my boss, I cannot stop. It's inappropriate, it's not right, and I can't do it. And explains Mr. Sharim in Parakir Aleph, that is the way we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And if you'd like to know the answer to Yosef, I believe that's exactly what he was doing. Yosef had a job. His job was working for his boss, his boss was Paro. All of the wealth belongs to Paro. This is his wheat. 
These are his storehouses. This is his wheat. It's going to be sold. It's my job, my duty, and to make sure that my boss's best interests are met. I can't trust the Avadim. I can't trust people there. <clears throat> Yosef, there are plenty of people you can put in order to a little bit of resource. No. My responsibility is the best interest of my boss. That's my duty. And Yosef sat there signing every single contract at every single sale of wheat because he felt that was his duty, that's his responsibility, and that's what an honest person does. And it's an astonishing illustration and because Yosef HaTzadik had many, many other things to do with his time. Yosef HaTzadik would have been well understood not to do it. In fact, it was inappropriate, as the Torah explains. It wasn't the thing a shalit, a ruler should do, maybe even an embarrassment to the monarchy. Nevertheless, this is my responsibility. This is my job. I have to make sure that all of the money that's supposed to get to my boss gets to my boss. Now keep in mind that Paro was not exactly a tzaddik. And Paro would not have complained to Yosef. Yosef made Paro the wealthiest man who had lived in generations. Everything that Paro became was owed to Yosef and had a little graft, a little bit been stolen, a little bit... Paro would not have had a complaint. As a matter of fact, it wasn't expected. As a matter of fact, it might have been inappropriate really for Yosef to do it. Nevertheless, this is my job. I have to be honest, I have to answer for my boss, my responsibility is I'm working for him, I have his best interests at heart, I cannot allow things to be stolen on my watch, and even if it means going way, way beyond what's expected, even if it means acting in a way that others wouldn't, and even might be inappropriate, I can't do it, and that's what an honest man does, and that is why Yosef Atzadik wasn't involved in learning all day, wasn't doing anything apparently, other than selling that wheat, being there, because that was his job. And then, and the Sulasharim explains to us something astonishing. He says these words, Rubam tomim tam geneva b'masam u'bamatnam. Most people, most people have a taste of geneva in their business dealings. And as a matter of fact, he quotes a Gemara. Rubam begezel. Only a small portion of people are involved with sins of immorality, of arias. Most people are gezel. Most people fall prey to thievery. And you'll ask the question, what do you mean? Okay, I'm not Yosef Atzadik. I may not go way, way, okay, I got that, but I don't steal. The people I associate with don't steal. We're not thieves. And I'd like to share with you what I believe this Chazal shares with us. And that is that it's not the obvious and not that which is so clear alone that's stealing. And let me give you a few examples. By the way, from the time I first read this Mesut Sharm when I was a young man, I never, ever would work for someone being paid by the hour. I had a pachad. Because who said I'm discharging my responsibilities? And I'll share with you an interesting story. It was a while back, and a young woman was working for me in the schmooze. And I came into the office one day, and I saw she was dominating mincha, a nice, long mincha, beautiful, wonderful. And I said to myself, that is very interesting. She's dominating mincha on the schmooze's dime. Now, I'm a nice guy, and I think it's appropriate for someone you know, to daven,
and I certainly am not going to make a fuss, but do I have a right as her employer not to say anything? Keep in mind, this is a stuck organization. People donate money, not for people to daven, but they donate money because the Shemuz has certain objectives, certain mission statement. And I realized something very, very critical. If you're working for someone, that means you're working for them. Now, naturally, there are expectations, and naturally, there's a certain understanding in the times, and there's such a thing called a lunch break, and there's such a thing as, as understood coffee breaks, etc. But if you're working for someone else, whatever is expected is what's expected. And the minute you go over that line, and the minute you're not really supposed to do that, well, guess what? You're now being paid for something that you're not doing. And if you take a break, and on your break you daven, that's wonderful. But if it's not your break, and you're davening, guess what? Ein zemevarech elemenoitz. That is not a blessing. And I don't know if the person is Esri or not, but I can tell you for sure it is not appropriate. And if you think about the way we conduct ourselves in business, I think you'll find there's an awfully large lesson for us to learn from this Chazal. Just look at the way people conduct themselves when they work in an office, and they work in whatever the environment, and watch them out the time they spend on the phone, and maybe doing big mitzvahs, you know, I, I want to read a shidduch, you know, I have to be involved, and I speak to this one and that one, and it's a wonderful thing. But if I'm not meeting my responsibilities to my boss, guess what? It's not a wonderful thing at all. It's called stealing. And anything that you do on the job that takes away your focus from what you're supposed to be doing is exactly that stealing. Now again, there are breaks, and there's expectations, and there's normal conduct. But the minute that you go over that line, and the minute that you abuse that, and if the boss was here, you would never do it, but <laughs> the boss is here, so let me just make this phone call, let me just take care of this personal matter, let me do this, whatever. Again, that's exactly what this Chazal is sharing with us. And that is that that is either directly Geneva or not that far away from it. And if you think about the way Chazal understood integrity and honesty, and if you think about the way it's understood in the world today, you'll find there's a vast difference between them. And if you think about all of the situations, I think you'll find many, many that if you're not very guarded and not very careful, against your will, you won't intend to, but you will end up stealing. And exactly that point says Ms. Sharm, most people, most people steal, not intentionally, they don't reach into other people's pocket to steal money, but they will end up stealing. And if you think about it, it shouldn't be that difficult. Let's deal with something called using someone's property without permission. Now the Gemara has an expression for that, it's called Shoel Shalomidas. Borrowing something without express permission is a goslin. He's either a Ghana or a goslin, depending on whether he's found out or not, but it's absolutely forbidden. But but come on, I didn't take anything really, I just used his object. He's my roommate, and I used it. I understand. Did he give you permission? No. Now, if it's expected, and it's normal, and that's what goes on in your dorm room, that's fine. But if it's not, and you use his whatever it is without permission, it's called Geneva. And if you think about all of the situations, I think you'll find many, many times that if you're not very careful and not very guarded, you'll violate this. 
But really, I think there's something that's even much more common. Any time that you and I are involved in a business situation, and it doesn't matter if you're in business or you're just a person, we're all going to have financial interactions, we're all going to buy and sell and have various things, or just dealing with neighbors. Any time that you have a situation and you don't ask a Shaila, I almost guarantee if there's a question, likely you're stealing. I'm going to explain to you exactly what I mean. You hit your neighbor's mailbox. Do you have to pay or not? So if you know Chosh Mishpat very well, you'll know whether you have to or not, and you'll know how much you have to pay or not. But it's not simple at all. And unless you learn through a lot of Chosh Mishpat, and unless you're very knowledgeable, I guarantee there'll be many, many situations that you'll deal with in buying and selling, whether you buy a shetel, whether you sell your car, whether you interact in many, many situations. And there's a question, do you owe, don't you owe? If you don't ask, I almost guarantee it won't be long before you will violate Geneva. Not intentionally, but you will. Why? Because the halachas are very clear, but they're very complex. And as an aside, I can't tell you how many times I've been in situations, and I learned halacha, I spent many years in yeshiva, and I deal certainly with shilas, but it happens to be Choshemish, but I didn't spend anywhere near as much time in as I wish I had. And there are many times that I get into situations, and as a result, I call. And you know what I find out? Many a time I was dead wrong. Many a time my assessment and my understanding wasn't correct, and had I gone forward with my position, it would have been a real problem. And really, you don't have to get that far to find yourself in this situation. In the United States of America today, it's a beautiful land we live in. But one of the fallacies of Western society is everyone lies. You don't have to go very far at all to see that politicians lie and lawyers lie and salesmen lie, and everyone lies. Almost every ad that you'll see on TV, every ad that you'll see in a magazine, any ad you'll see is Malay Sheker. As an example, many years ago, when they were building one of the first buildings in Lakewood for the yeshiva, they showed Rav Aaron a sketch and the sketch was something that they were going to send out to people <clears throat> to raise money. And in front of the beautiful new base medrash were trees. And Ravon asked him, please take away the trees. What's wrong with the trees? They're not there. And that's Shekhar. But what's, so what's wrong? It's not Emes. And if you understand that any little deviation from the truth that shades the situation, that changes it, is a Shekhar, you'll quickly see that Chazal demand from us a whole different level of integrity. Rishosalanta says is one definition of emes, that which you, in your heart you know to be true. And if your words that you speak don't match what's in your heart, that's called sheker. And if you <clears throat> deviate slightly and you don't tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and as a result of it someone buys or sells or whatever it is, well, guess what? I'm sorry to tell you that that is not exactly what the Torah wants. <clears throat> More than that, it might be Geneva, it might be out-and-out out stealing. And if you're in the business world, it's something you have to be incredibly conscious of, incredibly aware of. And if you're a human being, you have to be incredibly aware of it because we're all salesmen. We're all dealing with people, <clears throat> all dealing with situations. 
And when you see the level of integrity that's expected, but more than that, when you see the way Chazal define what Geneva is, it's a very eye-opening concept. I think Yosef is the primary example. Clearly, he went way, way lifnei Meshur Zedin, but what he was doing was exactly what the Svorner explains. This money is appropriate for Paro. Yosef was a shalit. He was the governor. He was the ruler. He didn't have to sign every contract. Nevertheless, he didn't trust the Avodim. And because of that, he said, I will be there. And through that, obviously, the entire Shalshalis came about. He recognized the brothers right away. He brought them down. And the rest is history. But the point is, he didn't allow wheat to be sold in Mitzrayim without his overseeing it, because that was his job. When I'm working for someone, my responsibility is the best interest of my boss, and that's what an honest person does. That's what the Torah demands, and anything else other than that is a deviation from honesty. Not every situation will be out in Al-Ganeva, many will be. And exactly as that Balchuva, if you sit down to eat a McDonald's Big Mac, and you make a bracha, it's not a bracha, it's a bracha levatala. And if on your boss's time, you do great mitzvahs, you do tremendous things, you save the client's role, you raise thousands of dollars for yeshivas, you open new stuck organizations. Ein zemivarech, it's not a bracha, it's called stealing. Yeah, but come on, look what I accomplished. Look, and I would have been doing nothing anyway, come on, what's it? It's not your business. You have a job to do, you have a responsibility, and if you're on the boss's time, on company time, you have no right to use that time for anything else. You have a coffee break, you have a lunch break, you use that. But if you're going to do great mitzvahs, you're going to do great chasav, but I'm such a nice guy and I don't feel right, not, not helping, not, you do that on your time. But if you're going to do that via stealing, if you're going to do that via taking something that's not yours, it's not a blessing, it's minoit, it's disgusting. And it says in Mitzvah Shayim, it's akin to taking a stolen object and using it for mitzvah. It's a lulav. What a holy lulav, but, it, but it's stolen. And a lulav a guzzle, guess what? It's a mitzvah babavera. And it doesn't work. And it's something to be aware of, something to understand. When we see people as in, honest as Yosef, that's a lesson. When you read about an Abba Chilkia, a man who wouldn't even say shalom. Believe me, he wouldn't have stopped work much. He wouldn't have interrupted the flow. But nevertheless, it would have stopped. It would have taken away. I can't do that. My day is sold. This is my obligation. And again, even though in our world that's not our reality, but it certainly is my obligation to put forth my best effort because that's what honesty demands. That's what's expected of me. If I'm a worker, if I'm a person, if I put my word to a contract, I'm obligated to keep that, even if it's not convenient, and even if it's not good for me. I gave my word, I said I would, and that's the expectation that I fulfill it. And I really want to close with one observation. You see, as great as Yosef HaTzadik was, he's not the only exemplary person in Tanakh. You listen to Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu went to work for Lovan. And he worked for Lovin for 20 years. But you have to recognize something. He worked for a man who he knew to be a Ramai, a devious trickster, 
And he knew that this man was not looking out for his best interests. And at the end of 20 years of work, he says to his wives, you know, with all of my strength, with all of my energy, I work for your father. The first seven years, he worked for Rachel. And he describes it, during the day I was consumed by heat. At night, the frost, the freezing cold, I barely slept during those years. And the entire time, Lovin mocked me, Lovin did everything he could to fool me, and in fact, the next seven years that he worked, Yaakov was not supposed to work. He worked seven years for Rachel, he marries Rachel, lo and behold, in the morning, he nay, he leah, it wasn't Rachel, he got duped. And he worked another seven years, seven more years of his life was worked for something that he didn't want. He didn't want to marry Leah, didn't agree Leah, love and tricked him, and he worked another seven years. But listen to what the Pusik says. Yaakov worked another seven years. Rashi, by the Lashon, what do you mean? Acheros. Owed another seven years. Acheros, other ones, what does other means? Says Rashi, that's the Medrash, Marishonas Be'emuna, just like the first seven years were completely with integrity. With complete honesty, so too the last seven years were with tremendous integrity. Even though love and tricked him. Even in the last seven years he wasn't supposed to work, the same integrity, the same honesty, he worked the same way. And if you like an illustration of what morality means, that is Yaakovino. You see, my morality isn't dictated by whether you're a nice guy to me, whether you smile at me, my morality is dictated by Das Torah. My morality is dictated by the Chosha Mishpat. And Yaakov Avinu slept in the fields, barely sleeping at night, consumed with this tremendous drive. I have to love him. I have his benefit in mind. He didn't bring a single miscarried sheep the entire 20 years. Not a single sheep was killed that Yaakov didn't personally replace. Love him went from being a regular person to one of the wealthiest people in that region, because Yaakov put in such effort, such tremendous hislavos, even though he was duped, and even though in the last second seven years were not something that Yaakov wanted to do. He was tricked into it, but worked with the same integrity, the same honesty, and this understanding that the way I act is conducted by the way Hashem wants me to act. There's a Shulchan Aruch, there's a Choshu Mishpat, not based on what's popular, not based on what people like, and not even based on whether I like this person or not. And there's a halacha, there's a shulchan aruch, and when you read stories like Yosef, you read about Abba and you read about Yaakov, you see integrity, you see honesty, you see what the Torah expects from a person to be incredibly, impeccably honest, keeping one's word, and keeping one's responsibility to the job.